0: Hello and welcome to Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, a new podcast I've put together with the cranially over-endowed thinkers over at Pan Macmillan. Today we're looking at one of my very favourite topics, emotions! Emotions are mysterious and unpredictable. That said, giving a tired and beleaguered breakfast radio presenter several bottles of export lager in combination with a late night text from an ex, I would say the emotional response of kicking a hoe in the bedroom door was very predictable. So with that in mind, here's my guest today, Lisa Feldman Barrett, the author of How Emotions Are Made. In the book, Lisa draws upon the latest scientific research to argue that many of our perceived notions about emotion are dramatically, even dangerously, out of date. And as a result, we are paying the price. With that in mind, here's Lisa now to read us an exclusive extract from How Emotions Are Made.
1: Hi, I'm Lisa Feldman Barrett, and I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my new book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. If you were in the audience at one of my talks, I'd show you an image of black and white blobs. If this was your first time seeing this particular set of blobs, your brain would be working very hard to make sense of them. Neurons in your visual cortex would be processing the lines and the edges of the blobs. Your amygdala, which is a group of neurons deep in your temporal lobe, would be firing rapidly because the input would be novel to you. Other brain regions would be sifting through your past experiences to determine if you've encountered anything like this input before, and they would be conversing with your body to prepare it for an as yet undetermined action. Most likely, you'd be in a state called experiential blindness seeing only black and white blobs of unknown origin. To cure your experiential blindness, I'd show you an image of an actual object. Then we'd go back to the black and white blobs. You would no longer see formless blobs, but you'd see a familiar object. So what happens in your brain to change your perception of these blobs? Your brain would be adding stuff from the photograph into its vast array of prior experiences and construct the familiar object that you would now see in the blobs. Neurons in your visual cortex would be changing their firing to create lines that weren't present, linking the blobs into a shape that isn't physically there. You would be, in a manner of speaking, hallucinating. Not the scary, I'd better get to the hospital kind of hallucination but the everyday, my brain is built to work like this hallucination. Your experience with the blobs would reveal a couple of insights. Your past experiences, from direct encounters, from photos, from movies and books, give meaning to your present sensations. Additionally, the entire process of construction is invisible to you. You can't observe yourself or experience yourself constructing the image. We needed a specifically designed example to unmask the fact that construction is occurring. You would consciously experience the shift from unknown to known because you saw the black and white blobs both before and after you had the relevant knowledge to draw on. The process of construction is so habitual that you might never again see those blobs as formless shapes, even if you tried hard to unsee the object and recapture that experiential blindness. This little magic trick of the brain is so common and normal that psychologists discovered it time and time again before they understood how it worked. We will call it simulation. It means your brain changed the firing of its own sensory neurons in the absence of incoming sensory input. Simulation can be visual, as with our blobs, or involve any of your other senses, If you've ever had a song playing through your head that you cannot get rid of, that audio hallucination is also a simulation. Think of the last time someone handed you a red juicy apple. You reached out for it, you took a bite, you experienced the tart flavor. During those moments, neurons were firing in the sensory and motor regions of your brain. Motor neurons fired to produce your movements, and sensory neurons fired... To process the sensation of the apple, like its red color with a blush of green, its smoothness against your hand, its crisp floral scent, the audible crunch when you bite into it, and its tangy taste with a hint of sweetness. Other neurons made your mouth water to release enzymes and begin digestion, released cortisol to prepare your body to metabolize the sugars in the apple, and prepared your stomach to churn a bit. But here's the cool thing. Just now, when you heard me say the word apple, your brain responded uh, to a certain extent as if the apple were actually present. Your brain combined bits and pieces of knowledge of previous apples that you've tasted and seen and changed the firing of neurons in your sensory and motor regions to construct the mental instance of the concept apple. Your brain simulated a non-existent apple using sensory and motor neurons. Simulation happens as quickly and automatically as a heartbeat. For my daughter's 12th birthday, we exploited the power of simulation and had a bit of fun by throwing a gross foods party. When her guests arrived, we served them pizza doctored with green food coloring so the cheese looked like fuzzy mold and peach gelatin laced with bits of vegetables to look like vomit. For drinks, we served white grape juice in medical urine sample cups. Everyone was exuberantly disgusted. It was the perfect 12-year-old humor. And several guests could not bring themselves to touch the food as they involuntarily simulated vile tastes and smells. The piece de resistance, however, was the party game we played after lunch, a simple contest to identify foods by their smell. We used mashed baby food, peaches, spinach, beef, and so on, and artfully smeared it on diapers so that it looked exactly like baby poo. Even though the guests knew that the smears were food, several actually gagged from the simulated smell. Simulations are your brain's best guess of what's happening in the world. In every waking moment, you're faced with ambiguous, noisy information from your eyes, ears, nose, and other sensory organs. Your brain uses your past experiences to construct a hypothesis, a simulation, and it compares the simulation to the cacophony arriving from your senses. In this manner, simulation lets your brain impose meaning on the noise, selecting what's relevant and ignoring the rest. Outside your brain, simulation can cause tangible changes in your body. Let's try a little creative simulation with a bee. In your mind's eye, I'd like you to see a bee bouncing lightly on the petal of a fragrant white flower buzzing around as it searches for pollen. If you're fond of bees, then the flutter of imaginary wings is right now causing other neurons to prepare your body to move in for a closer look preparing your heart to beat faster, your sweat glands to fill, and your blood pressure to decrease. Or, if you've been badly stung by a bee in the past, your brain may ready your body to run away or make a swatting motion, formulating some other pattern of physical changes. Each time your brain simulates sensory input, it prepares automatic changes in your body that have the potential to change your feeling. Your bee-related simulations are rooted in your mental concept of what a bee is. This concept not only includes information about the bee itself, what it looks like and sounds like, how you act on it, and what changes in your autonomic nervous system allow your action, and so on, but also information contained in other concepts related to bees, such as meadow, flower, honey sting, pain, and so on. All this information is integrated with your concept B, guiding how you simulate the B in a particular context. So a concept like B is actually a collection of neural patterns in your brain representing your past experiences. Your brain combines these patterns in different ways to perceive and flexibly guide your action in new situations. Concepts also give meaning to the chemicals that create tastes and smells. If I served you pink ice cream, you might expect, that is, you might simulate, the taste of strawberry. But if it tasted like fish, you would find it jarring, perhaps even disgusting. If I instead introduced it as a chilled salmon mousse to give your brain fair warning, you might find the same taste delicious, assuming you enjoy salmon. You might think of food as existing in the physical world, but in fact, the concept, food, is heavily cultural. Obviously, there are some biological constraints. You can't eat razor blades. But there are some perfectly edible substances that we don't all perceive as food, such as hachinoko, a Japanese delicacy made of baby bees, which most Westerners would vigorously avoid. This cultural difference is due to concepts. Every moment that you're alive, your brain uses concepts to simulate your experiences and perceptions of the outside world. Without concepts, you'd be experientially blind, as you were with the black and white blobs. With concepts, your brain simulates so invisibly and automatically that vision, hearing, and your other senses seem like reflexes rather than constructions. Now consider this. What if your brain uses... The same process to make meaning of the sensations from inside your body. The commotion arising from your heartbeat, breathing, and other internal movements. From your brain's perspective, your body is just another source of sensory input that must be explained. Sensations from your heart and lungs, your metabolism, your changing temperature, and so on, are like the ambiguous blobs that we've talked about. These purely physical sensations inside your body have no objective psychological meaning. Once your concepts enter the picture, however, those sensations may take on additional meaning. If you feel an ache in your stomach while sitting at the dinner table, you might experience hunger. If flu season is just around the corner, you might experience the same ache as nausea. If you're a judge in a courtroom... You might experience the ache as a gut feeling that the defendant is not to be trusted. In a given moment, in a given context, your brain uses concepts to give meaning to internal sensations as well as to external sensations from the world, all at the same time. From an aching stomach, your brain constructs an instance of hunger, nausea, or mistrust. Now consider that same stomach ache If you're sniffing a diaper heavy with pureed lamb, as my daughter's friends did at her gross foods birthday party, you might experience the ache as disgust. Or if your lover has just walked into the room, you might experience the ache as a pang of longing. If you're in a doctor's office waiting for the results of a medical test, you might experience the same ache as an anxious feeling. In these cases of disgust, longing, and anxiety, The concept active in your brain is an emotion concept. As before, your brain makes meaning of your aching stomach together with the sensations from the world around you by constructing an instance of that concept. An instance of emotion. And that just might be how emotions are made.
0: That was an extract from Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made, and I'm emotional actually to say that I have her with me in the studio now. Hello, hi there. Thanks for that. Um, it's a fascinating subject, obviously, because it's, but it's such a deep-rooted subject, and it must have been very difficult to untangle or to attempt to untangle. So, congratulations for doing it. Uh, but I'm going to be a layman here and say something off the bat that I want you to react to. Surely emotions are innate and universal and hardwired. Why are we even writing an entire book about this?
1: You know, that's an awesome question. And frankly, when I think about my own experiences, I certainly experience emotions as automatic, taking me over, sometimes causing me to do and say things I would rather not do. And sometimes when I'm explaining how emotions work, even to me, it sounds implausible, frankly. But the brain is the brain, wiring is wiring, the data are what they are, and there's a lot of evidence to show us that emotions are not innate. They certainly are automatic, but they are largely learned. They're hardwired in a way because we have brains that wire themselves to our world. So a lot of all the learning we have that we can ever remember is somewhere lurking in the wiring of our brains. Emotions seem like they just happen to us. It seems to us like we can just look at someone else and know how they feel in the same way that we can very easily read words on a page in the blink of an eye. But in fact, we're not reading other people. We are guessing at what is going on inside them. And sometimes our guesses are, are great And sometimes our guesses are completely off base. And when people come from different cultures or they have different experiences or even when they are of different um, genders, um, sometimes those guesses can be be wrong.
0: Well, you use some very uh, brilliant visual cues as well when you talk about... uh the classic theory of emotions, uh, and you you talk about a study in the '60s and use some of the photos in the book of posed actors posing certain obvious um, emotions like surprise or disgust or whatever. And these are you these have been used to sort of back up this idea that you could show these to anybody in the world and they will have a re- oh yeah that guy's disgusted that guy's uh, annoyed that lady is is happy, but it's a lot more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, so it turns out that these faces that we think of as um, expressing emotions, so smiling in happiness and scowling in anger and pouting in sadness and so on, are really stereotypes. They're stereotypes that scientists stipulated. They didn't discover them by observing people. They just... Um, declared, in a sense. Almost like
0: a cartoonish version of an emotion, is what you're saying.
1: Exactly right. So, you know, I often say to people, when is the last time you saw someone win an Academy Award or any kind of acting award for scowling in anger? (laughs) Who do you actually know who scowls in anger? I can only, off the top of my head, think of one person who's very popular in the American (laughs) media right now, who scowls when angry. But most people don't. If you think about it, sometimes you... Um, You smile in anger. Sometimes you uh, stay very still in anger. Sometimes you laugh in the face of anger. Sometimes you cry in anger. Mm. Your brain has the capacity to make many different angers. This is something that the great psychologist William James uh, back in the late 1800s noted very importantly that uh, anger is not a thing with a specific facial expression and a specific bodily state, your face and your body do many different things in anger, depending on the situation that you're in. So for example, um, when my husband's angry, he gets very quiet. He really doesn't yell. Mm. And in fact, when he's concentrating really hard, he knits his brow and scowls, like that stereotyped angry face but in fact when he's angry he actually never makes that face it's only when he's concentrating really so hard
0: uh, so, so an outside observer might get those two emotions completely mixed up if they don't know him mean think he's angry when he's concentrating yeah exactly
1: to, and that yeah. actually happens however um, you know all of us have the capacity to learn w- details about other people and so very quickly i learned that that was not an angry face for him and so i would never make that mistake
0: yeah it's well the other thing you touch on there you know this, this idea of the cultural differences uh, there are what is, is this thing that we're, we're quite used to now: you know this idea that different cultures have for instance words to describe things that other cultures simply don't have like i think What's that? There's uh, there's gazellig, isn't there? <laughs> which you, you mentioned in your book. Higa is another Higa one. Isn't it? Is That's a same. Danish one, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, like be, yeah. just generally being comfortable with your loved ones or something, perhaps under a duvet. But that's described in one word. It is kind of an emotion, isn't it?
1: It's not kind of an emotion. It very much is an emotion for people who are Danish or Dutch, right? And,
0: and we, but as an English person, I don't really have that concept. So is that that's part of what this is? Is that if you don't have the concept, then you can't quite have the emotion the same way?
1: Exactly. So there is a lot wrapped up in what you just said. I think first of all, it's a pretty new idea that. Well, let me say it differently. It's a pretty old idea that there are cultural differences, but I think it's a pretty new idea from a scientific standpoint that we now have evidence that this is the case. Um, I think people have been pretty divided in the past about whether or not emotions are universal or whether or not there's substantial cultural variation. I think that the human brain has the capacity to use concepts in combination so for example you and i can with a lot of effort create a feeling that is somewhat like huga or gazellig, mm. because we have the capacity of comfort and love and um, many of the other pieces that we can put together to make that feeling but the issue here is that for me and you At first, we would make that feeling with a lot of effort, you know. So, brains have the capacity for conceptual combination. That's fantastic for us. But, you know, it takes a lot of work. Whereas for a Dutch person or a Danish person, for them, it would be, you know, their brains would be able to make it in the blink of an eye. Now, if you and I practiced it uh, enough, our brains would also be able to do it in the blink of an eye. And the fact that we have a single word makes the whole thing extremely efficient because i can say to you hey sean i'm feeling gazellig right now and you can say yeah lisa me too i'm feeling hugger. and <laughs> um but if we wanted to try to explain this feeling communicate it to someone else or teach it to a child without a single word it would be really really inefficient
0: and that's the cookie cutter idea that you sort of touched upon then as well is that and, and i like this idea that emotions are like cookies uh, could you explain that very quickly to the listener
1: yeah so there in fact i use a, a cookie analogy in the book and um in particular i'm using a chocolate chip cookie analogy because these are my husband's favorite cookies and you know so it's a little uh all right mine a little tip yeah <laughs> There is a lot about cookies that um That helps us understand really what emotions are and how they work. So, for example, there isn't one kind of chocolate chip cookie. In fact, there are many kinds of chocolate chip cookie. You can think of the stereotype or the ideal cookie in your mind, actually, as you do that. You know, all sorts of things are happening in your brain. You're making your own neurons you're parts of certain. i salivating
0: of, right now. Exactly about the hazelnuts.
1: Exactly, exactly. For me, it would be walnuts. But, <laughs> um, but he, that's another aspect that's really interesting, right? We don't. You and I don't have to be simulating exactly the same thing for us to be communicating. It can just be, mm. you know, close enough. Also, cookies are made with general ingredients, right? So flour and salt and butter and some other things, mm. water, um, and. Those ingredients can be used to make lots of different kinds of cookies, but also lots of different other types of foods, and sometimes things that are not even food, for example, like um, glue, Yeah. right? They're general ingredients that you would find in their kitchen, and in your kitchen, and if you wanted to make um, any version of the whole population of chocolate chip cookies that, that you could potentially make, you just sort of vary the ingredients, uh, the the amount of the ingredients. That's kind of what your brain is doing. Your brain, all human brains are wired with a set of networks. They don't look exactly the same in every person. And even in a given instant in your own brain, the networks don't, it's not exactly the same neurons every time that make this network, each network. But the networks themselves um, are like general ingredients and they're used not just to make emotions, but also to make your thoughts and your feelings, uh, simple feelings, uh, physical symptoms, and even perceptions. So the whole point is that at every given moment in your entire life, your brain is using its past experience to construct all, um, all of your mental experiences using Not just the past, but also sensory information from the world and Mm. from your body. What this means, right, is that even though uh, thinking to you feels very different um, from from an emotion, the same ingredients are being used, even though you're not aware of it, right? Just like in a cookie, uh, there is usually salt, even though most chocolate chip cookies don't salty i mean unless they are you know with sea salt for yeah. example yeah yeah
0: I, and I, I see that the penny dropped a little bit on that when you talked about it so what you're saying is is what you're saying a little bit then with that that what you've got is you've got two you've got your concept of something like um being sad and if you add that or you superimpose it onto a bunch of phys- physiological things that are happening in your body If your brain puts them together, then they get a a product, which is a sad emotion. But at the same time, the same physiological things could come up, but with a different uh, imposition on it, it could be something completely different, like your stomach ache analogy.
1: Absolutely. And that's exactly what the evidence, the scientific evidence, shows us. So when we look, for example... Um, at people's faces so people can smile when they're happy but they smile when they're angry and they sometimes smile when they're in pain and for example if I show people faces and I strip out all the context and it's a smile some of those smiles are actually people who are in agony because a smile and a grimace can look actually physically it's not that they look the same they physically are the same Movements, right? Or um, when I measure, for example, people's bodies when they're experiencing emotion, um, whether they're angry or sad or happy, um, sometimes those physical changes in their body are identical. So, for example, we just finished um, a big summary of all of the studies that have ever been published on emotion, measuring people's bodies, like their heart rate and their breathing rate, and so on. And what we find is that um, there's tremendous variability within an emotion category, so all the instances of happiness, say. But there are also tremendous similarities (laughs) across different emotions. So it's exactly as you said. Sometimes the sensations in your body um, can be ingredients uh, into happiness, but sometimes they can be ingredients into sadness or anger Mm -hmm. or a physical symptom um, like a stomachache, yeah. um, or um, <clears throat> excuse me, or even a perception of the world, like that guy's an idiot, that guy is nice. This is a super delicious drink, yeah. and so on.
0: It's it's like he's going back to the uh, the Oscars analogy. Really, you could see for the four panels of the the people waiting, and and when the uh, you know the name is read out, they might all be smiling, but three of them. It's not a real smile, is it? Yeah, exactly. You, know, it's, it, you might have the same physiological re- responses, but a, a different emotion in, in each person.
1: Exactly. So, for example, I was this morning I, when I was working out and I was running on the treadmill, I was watching, I don't know which uh, television station it was, but you have a runner, a British runner. Um, I can't remember his name now. It was a presenter? Um, no, he was It oh. was videos of him okay. winning all these races. Oh, right, right. And um, it, he, every, he would run across the finish line, and as he ran across the finish line, he was clearly elated, but he was not smiling, right? If I had just taken a picture of his face and I showed it alone, people yeah. would think he was in agony. But in fact, he was, he was elated. And what was really interesting is that when, the ca- when he realized the camera was on him, he would smile. But when he was in his own moment... Right.
0: That's not how he expressed it.
1: No, and in fact, there are actual scientific studies where where scientists have looked at how Olympians um, look, what are they doing with their faces, when in the moments that are private for them and they're clearly elated versus in the moments that are very public. Which tells us something else about facial movements is that partly they are um, not for expressing emotion necessarily, but for communicating yeah. meaning to, to other people. It's a
0: shorthand to say, you know, yeah, I can completely understand that if you want to show somebody that you're actually happy, you might have to pull that face, even though you don't physically feel like doing it.
1: Exactly. And I'll just say one other thing, which I think is really interesting. These stereotyped faces that are posed by actors, these are not professional actors. These are people who are actors, and they were told by scientists how to move their faces. But there are a series of books that have been published in the last couple of years called Actors Acting, where actors, famous actors, are given, really accomplished actors, are given scenarios, emotional scenarios, and they're asked to pose what that emotion would look like. Now, I think in a very real way, our, um, our most accomplished actors are experts at emotion, they they have to cultivate that emotion, and they have to communicate it um, to um, a huge audience. So these people are, you know, although they're not scientists, they're just experts in another way, right? And What we've done is actually taken these photographs and we've analyzed them using um, technology to measure what they're doing with their faces. And we've showed them to to other, you know, test subjects and so on. And I can tell you for a fact that all of the scenarios which are judged, the scenarios which are judged to be, say, about anger, when you look at the facial movements that these actors pose, the majority of them, like almost 100 percent, are not scowling, yet when you look at them, when I look at them, when the average person looks at them, they look like like extremely effective portrayals of the emotion. So, I think it's really important for scientists, but also for us as just everyday people, to realize that um, an emotion is not a thing. It's a highly variable set of instances, a population. Um, Darwin In on the origin of species talked importantly about what he called population thinking. So a lot of people naively, me too, actually thought that Darwin's greatest insight was natural selection, but actually his greatest insight was population thinking. He realized that the variation that you find in a species is really meaningful. It's not error. So before Darwin, you know, it was like the dog show version of, um, of the natural world. You know, there was a perfect cocker spaniel mm. with a perfect length nose and perfect ears yeah. and so on. And everything else was considered to be imperfect kind of error. And Darwin's great insight was that it's all of this variability is, is meaningful. Without this variation, natural selection has nothing to select. Yeah. And so many biological categories... Not just animals, but many biological, in fact, all biological categories are conceptual categories, that is, is, they're populations of highly variable instances.
0: It's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's a shame we haven't got longer. I would love to get into you know, the, the, this idea of granular emotional responses and the fact that some people, when, when asked... They, they, you know, they have much less of a vocabulary about expressing emotions. So they, they just say, I feel sad when it could be about 80 different things.
1: Right, right. So think about if it's really the case that your, your emotions are not your reactions to the world, but your brain is making them as needed and it's using concepts. For some people, they make really general instances like I feel like crap. I feel really good that's about it right mm-hmm. for some people they can make you know a small vocabulary so they can make angry and sad and happy but there are some people who are you might think of them as sommeliers right of emotion <laughs> or um uh or the you know the great painters the who connoisseurs can, of yeah, emotion yes connoisseurs <laughs> of emotion so they can for them it's not just crappy and happy it's 50 shades of crappy right so it's they can make um, you know, um, irritation and frustration and rage and dissatisfaction yeah. and, you know, in very – and for them, um, the, those feelings and the actions that go with those emotions are very, very distinct. And it turns out that this is a trainable skill. Um, you know, if you train kids, for example, um, and you teach them these, these differences, their little brains wire uh, those differences and uh, become wired into the brain. And this not only helps them regulate their own behavior, because, you know, you do something different in irritation than in frustration, right? As opposed to just, I feel angry or I feel bad, right? Um, But it also actually helps them, it changes the whole emotional climate of a classroom and it actually helps their academic performance.
0: Because they can express themselves and therefore they're less frustrated and they can perhaps think a bit clearer.
1: And that means that the way they make emotion is more efficient, which leaves the rest of the uh, resources and energy for them to spend on their schooling. I should also say, surprisingly, and, you know, for me, I mean, granularity is something I discovered more than 20 years ago, but I still have to say I'm super surprised to to tell you that there's even scientific evidence that people with higher granularity um, are are less likely to get sick, and they are faster to recover from very serious illnesses um, like cancer, for example. And that's because the parts of the brain that are important for launching the simulations, which are your concepts, are also the parts of the brain which regulate the systems in your body. So, this is a striking um, discovery that we made that I discuss in the book. Uh, and this means that concepts are not just important for your experience when, you know, they're not just cookie cutters yeah. for your experience. They also are tools that your brain uses to regulate the systems of your body. And so, the boundary between what is mental and what is physical is really um not a biological boundary, right? I'm not talking to you in some mystical mm. kind of way. I'm telling you that there's a very real biological link between what your body is doing and what you experience in your mind. How your brain makes your mind you know, your your mind is just a computational moment mm. of your brain, but your brain's also controlling your body. And so this is something that I go into quite in depth in the book because it's It's a very empowering insight for people who want to change their emotional lives or optimize their emotional lives in some way.
0: It's, it is, it's fascinating that that, that, that wall is disintegrating between the physiological and the psychological, and it, it's, it's gone into, in, in, as uh, it's been said here in great detail, in Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made, which is available right now. Um, and, but thank you very much for touching on it for us. There's obviously so much in it uh, for people to discover, uh, but I hope we've whetted their appetite. Um, thanks very much indeed for coming and chatting to us today.
1: It's been delightful. Thank you so much.
0: Well that's it. I'm Sean Feedman. It's been the Motion See you next time.